Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we're going to have a conversation with John Lindstrom, who is the publisher of Gongwer Capital News Service in Lansing. He wrote a piece in Gongwer recently about how if we got rid of no-fault insurance here in Michigan, we would go back to a system that few people actually remember John Lindstrom is one of the people who does remember what that system was like. He remembers what the pros and the cons were of that system. We're going to talk about what that would look like if we went back to a tort system here uh, to regulate uh, auto insurance in the state of Michigan. So you're not going to want to miss uh, that conversation. It'll get started a little past half past the hour. But up front, it is horrifying to think that USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser's cruelty toward hundreds of girls and young women happened so close to home at Michigan State University. But it's also not just coincidence that it happened here in Michigan. In the wake of the Nasser scandal, survivors have turned their attention to our state's sexual assault laws. They say Michigan is one of the worst states in the nation when it comes to laws in the books to protect people from sexual abuse. Those survivors are teaming up with a bipartisan group of state lawmakers to strengthen those protections. They unveiled a series of new bills yesterday at the state capitol, and those bills would extend the statute of limitations for civil and criminal sexual abuse claims to 30 years after a person's 18th birthday. They would increase penalties for possessing child pornography, and they would require coaches, athletic trainers, and physical therapists to report complaints of sexual abuse and increase the penalties for failing to report those cases. They would also make it clear that governmental entities, including colleges and universities, don't have immunity from civil or criminal sexual assault cases. That is a lot of change on the landscape of sexual abuse laws here in the state of Michigan. And joining us now to talk about those proposed changes is State Senator Margaret O'Brien. She is a Republican from Portage on the west side of the state. She represents Michigan's 20th State Senate District. Uh, Senator O'Brien, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, so let's talk about these measures that uh, that you are, are, are proposing there in the legislature <clears throat> and how you think they might have worked to prevent something like the Nasser scandal at MSU? Well, these bills are called Protecting Michigan's Children. And as you pointed out, if we would have had some of these laws, if not all of them, in effect at time, that there could have been people who would have reported. We know that coaches and athletic trainers knew and they didn't report. Well, today they're not mandated reporters, so there would have been no penalty for them not reporting. Additionally, for those who don't want to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, with having harsher penalties, maybe they would have done the right thing because they didn't want to face those penalties. And it's it's very frustrating what happened with USA Gymnastics and Michigan State, because here's a good case for all your listeners out there of why the media is so important, why investigative journalism is so important. If it wasn't for the journalists and for people like you who shed a spotlight on this dark shadow, we never would have heard the true story because everything had failed all of these survivors. Yeah. Um, are, are you getting any sort of pushback from other legislators or interest groups who say maybe these kinds of changes are too extreme and, and would make uh, make it harder uh, in, in other ways that we're not thinking about? So far, we're not getting any pushback. There's always questions and concerns, making sure that 
our laws are treating every person fairly. So I fielded quite a number of questions. Today there will be a committee hearing at 3 o'clock, and I expect that if there is any further concern or opposition, we will hear about it in committee. Yeah. Um, talk about how you became interested in this issue. As I said in the open, these laws have existed the way they have for a long time here in Michigan. A lot of people say we're among the worst in the way that we deal with these things. What what made you feel like uh, th- this is the time to sort of go back at this in a bigger way than just dealing with the Nasser scandal? Rachel Den Hollander, who was the first person to put her name and face with against Larry Nassar. She was the first victim to go public with her name. Mm-hmm. I've known her for quite a long time, and she and I had corresponded privately when she had gone public. And then she said, Margaret, I really need a meeting. And both Rachel and Sterling Reisman, who's also from Kalamazoo County, they met with me and a small group of legislators on December 5th. And at that point, they laid out everything that they had researched and what they had discovered. And it became very clear what our mission was. Our mission was to right the wrongs. It was to improve young people's future to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that is what these brave women, these survivor sisters have been working on is they want to take their horrific experience and make it a positive for the rest of the youth and young people in our state. Yeah, uh, we expect to be hearing, in fact, from uh, Rachel Den Hollander in a little bit here on the show so she can talk about her experience uh, with this issue as well. Can you talk about how likely... Uh, these bills are to get to the governor's desk and whether you've heard anything about whether the governor might be inclined to sign them? Well, you know, we've had a productive relationship with the governor's office. And in fact, they brought us, um, you know, a request to increase the penalties for child pornography. Child pornography often goes hand in hand with sexual abuse of children. And so we have had a good productive relationship with the governor's office. We will continue that. I expect that once they get to his desk, he will sign. And we were given our marching orders last night by Rachel. She's due to have her fourth child in July. And she said, please, I want to attend the bill signing prior to giving birth to my fourth child. Yeah, uh, I'm also curious about how you see uh, the, mis- the administration at Michigan State dealing with this now. Of course, uh, the legislature in some ways has some oversight responsibility for our, our public universities. Do, do you feel like they're doing the right things at this point? Do you feel like they're headed in a direction that would also help prevent this from happening in the future? You know, I've spoken with interim President Engler, and I will say I am optimistic about what he wants to do. He's already made some important changes. He continues to make important changes. And so I I do feel optimistic about the future. We continue to monitor, to watch, to analyze, criticize if necessary. And I think he welcomes that transparency. But moreover, I've been very touched by the fact that he has reached out to victims. Everybody thinks about the athletes, the gymnasts. Sure. But there have been people at Michigan State who are raped or sexually assaulted who were not athletes, and he has reached out to them. So I'm encouraged. And I'm hopeful. But as I told all of the women who were gathered yesterday, I said, hold our feet to the fire. Don't just let a movement forward be enough. Make sure we cross that finish line. 
And I expect that we will have a strong partnership with Michigan State to ensure that they cross that finish line and change the culture on their campus. And and what about the governance issues that have come up out of this scandal? The idea uh, that the universities, three large universities in the state, are governed by boards that are independently elected. A lot of folks have said this is the time to think about that and maybe. Uh, way whether we might handle that uh, a little differently. What's your what's your sense of that? You know, I'm very interested in having those conversations, and I'm not opposed to putting this on the ballot to see if people would like to change the governance structure. I do worry that how we pick the trustees of Michigan State, Wayne State, University of Michigan, and our state school board, I worry that too many people are voting on some on people that they've never met and that those people aren't accountable. Uh-huh. But at the end of the day, changing the governance structure is not going to right this wrong. So my focus remains on this package of bills protecting Michigan's children. But I'm very open to having all conversations about how we can ensure we have accountability. Yeah. What, what about the various investigations that are going on at Michigan State, uh, including from state lawmakers? There's been a suggestion that maybe MSU could be punished through the budget process for what happened there or that uh, universities in general could face financial punishments for not dealing with sexual assault and sexual abuse. Where, where do you come down on that issue? Well, Senator Shootmaker is the chair of, of higher education here in the Senate, mm-hmm. and she will have to make decisions on that. But in my conversations with her, her goal has always been about having safe college campuses. So I don't expect there to be just some arbitrary retribution, you know, trying to take away money, but rather saying, if you accept this money, we want to ensure safe college campuses. Our goal is not to penalize the current students at Michigan State, but we will take whatever steps we need to do to ensure that safe college campus. And I look to Senator Shootmaker's leadership in making sure that all of our college campuses are safe, not just Michigan State. Okay, uh, finally, uh, tell me about the timeline for these bills. When do you expect uh, that they might move out of a committee? Uh, When do you expect that they might get a vote uh, on the floor and head to the governor's desk? Well, today we're holding committee hearings at 3 o'clock, and we hope that they will be voted out of committee. Mm -hmm. And then under Senate rules, they cannot be voted on by the full Senate until next week because the bills were just introduced yesterday. And then we will work with our House partners to hopefully get some swift passage and to do the work over in the House. And we have some strong House partners. So the House has been working with us on these issues. It would be our goal to have this done before the summer work period goes into effect. So I would like to see this at the latest mid-June be finalized. Okay. Uh, State Senator Margaret O'Brien, Republican from Portage on the west side of the state. She represents Michigan's 20th State Senate District. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. And again, thank you for what you have done to ensure that the survivors' voices have been heard. I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Let's pivot here quickly to uh, someone who has an incredible amount of knowledge about this scandal and the various ripples that have come out of it. Rachel Den Hollander was the first survivor to publicly accuse Larry Nassar of sexual abuse. And now she's working with lawmakers like Senator O'Brien on this legislation to change Michigan's sexual assault laws. If you saw any of the Larry Nassar trial on television, you probably saw Rachel because every time a survivor gave an impact statement, they would go hug her. She was in many ways the leader of this group of survivors whose bravery in coming forward allowed them to share their stories 
as well. Rachel Denhallander, thank you for being with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, And there was a quote uh, from you in the Washington Post that I want to start with. Um, uh, You said, this was never something I anticipated. This is not a platform that I ever wanted. I actively desire not to be a public figure on the issue of sexual abuse because it requires relinquishing so much privacy. I feel that in many ways, particularly leading up to this, I was given a job that I didn't want to do. I think that's a really powerful statement about the complications that uh, sort of drive uh, the things that we've seen, the heroism we've seen over the last couple of months as women have come forward to talk about what happened with Larry Nassar. Can you give us an idea of how that played out for you personally, the decision to come forward and say, this happened, this happened to me, and it's important. And, and we should also note that, that you did that with, uh, with a journalist, uh, with, the, with journalists from the Indianapolis Star, which I think makes it even more difficult uh, to, 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 to sort of talk about those things. Can you walk us through that process in your mind, how you came to this space? Yeah, uh, you know, it, it is a very difficult process uh, to reach that point. Uh, for me, it really wasn't. I didn't feel like I had a choice. Um, you know, I knew I knew how it was going to have to be done. I was convinced from the time I started understanding what had happened uh, that the only way uh, to to put enough public pressure on the institution surrounding Larry uh, to get them to take what had happened seriously, the only way uh, really to make the truth come out was for someone to be able to meet Larry where he was most confident, which is on public ground, mm-hmm. and be able to do it without flinching because he relied on his reputation, he relied on his charisma. He relied on his ability to manipulate people, and an anonymous voice was never going to be enough to stop that, particularly when you're surrounded by two very powerful institutions. Uh, so I was always convinced it would have to be done this way. I did not expect I would ever be the one to do it because I believed the statute of limitations had expired on my 25th birthday, uh-huh. and I had never seen any hope of being believed. Uh, but when that Indie Star article came out, and it was detailing the level of corruption at USA Gymnastics, uh, specifically on the issue of their uh, rampant cover-up of sexual assault, mm-hmm. uh, I immediately knew this is it. This is the time. You know, if, if the public is willing to see the amount of corruption at USAG, hopefully they will finally be willing to see uh, what their own team doctor has been doing. Um, and I felt like it was a shot in the dark, but it was the first one I saw. Yeah. Uh, and so I just began researching statutes again, went back to uh, all the evidence that I had compiled. And that was when I discovered that the statute of limitations had been lifted, that I could not only speak up, but I could also file a police report. Um, so we got everything in place and we packed the family up and we came up to Michigan and we started the process uh, because it had to be done and it had to be done now. Did you think when you made that decision that so many other women would come forward? I mean, did you really did you really sort of, uh, I guess, appreciate the weight of what was going on and how how rampant uh, this this story would would become? I did. um, And and that was part of what was so difficult um, about knowing what needed to be done um, was because I knew this was going to be national headlines. I knew it would mean those details um, being out there for everyone being out there on an, on an international level because Larry was an international physician mm-hmm. uh, with the Olympic team. And I was confident he had abused thousands. I'm still confident he has abused thousands of women. Whether or not those women would ever feel safe enough to come forward, uh, that was kind of the, the wild card, for lack of a better term. Um, and that is why I chose, a big part of why I chose to speak um, very publicly, because I knew that the best way to reach other sexual assault survivors was to let them know that they would be safe and that they would be understood. Uh, and to do that, you need a name and a face. An anonymous voice isn't enough. 
Um, so I'm very grateful to see where they are uh, and where we are in this process. Um, but it, I was aware of what it would look like if this story really picked up. Yeah. And that was a difficult thing to comprehend. So, so you're an attorney now, and uh, talk about how that has played a role in the way that you first were scrutinizing Michigan's sexual assault laws, but also uh, the drive to get the laws changed here in Michigan now. Um, you know, it, it really did form a foundation uh, to be able to do what I did, to understand the legal process, to be able to go back and, um, you know, and look at the statutes and say, okay, this is, I have a case, this is where the evidence matches up, this is how the court has treated the statutes. Um, and so that, you know, it really did give me a good foundation for compiling the evidence and compiling the case file to move forward. Uh, and in, in terms of the legislative reform, uh, you know, one of the things that I discovered as I was researching was that in many ways, Michigan is actually at the bottom of the nation in its ability to protect sexual assault victims and to prevent future sexual assaults uh, because of our stringent laws regarding the statute of limitations, regarding sovereign immunity, uh, and some of our outdated evidentiary codes. And all of those things are addressed uh, by this legislative package that Senator O'Brien and so many other courageous leaders have put together. Uh, So I'm very excited to see those changes be able to come to fruition. Yeah. You're you're the second person we've talked to this, this, this day that talks about this state of the law here in Michigan before all of this happened. One of the things that strikes me about that is I don't think most people here were aware of how bad the laws were, right? I I, I don't think anyone was walking around thinking, uh, good grief, we are not protecting young people or anybody uh, from people who want to commit sexual abuse. What what do you think owes to that? Uh, what, What do you think created that sort of uh, lax enforcement of of pretty basic law to protect people from these kind of these kind of predators uh, what what were we what were we doing wrong and how do we end up in that space uh, you know I think there are a couple dynamics to that uh, the first as you said is I don't think a lot of it is malicious a lot of it is lack of knowledge this this is not a discussion that we have on a public forum very often uh, because it's incredibly painful for the victims to do it. And the reality is that until people are faced with the devastation of sexual assault, until they can see firsthand what it looks like uh, when we don't have the right laws in place, uh, when the justice system isn't open to survivors of sexual abuse, until they can see that devastation with their own eyes, we just don't have a discussion about it. And so I think that's part of the dynamic. Um, Part of the dynamic is we have a lot of misconception uh, swirling around the issue of sexual abuse. We have a lot of outdated um, and misogynistic ideas regarding sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one particular piece of legislation um, that actually has been stuck in committee for approximately a year, uh, a revision to our evidentiary code that is incredibly important for prosecuting uh, sexual abusers, serial sexual abusers specifically. Uh, and that, that legislation has been stuck in committee for approximately a year. And the biggest objection to it um, that, was, that was put out in committee meetings by certain senators was that well, women lie too much. Well, if you know anything about the statistics of sexual assault, you know that's not true. Uh-huh. All studies have found that the absolute maximum rate of false reporting is 8%, and most of those are in child custody cases. Most experts agree that the, the rate of false reporting is somewhere around 2%. And the truth is that we have significant protection in our evidentiary code uh, to help make sure that evidence is relevant, to help make sure it's not unduly prejudicial. Uh, and so all of those protections were in place. 
But because of this misconception that there's this high rate of false reporting and that women are just lying in court Mm -hmm. about what has happened to them, this evidentiary, this piece of evidentiary revision uh, was stuck in committee for a year and we did not have it available. Prosecutors did not have it available to them when they were attempting to prosecute some very dangerous serial rapists in Michigan just a few months ago. Uh Um, And that does not need to happen. You know, that is something that could have been changed a year ago if we had not had these outdated notions about sexual abuse and these misogynistic ideas about women. Uh, And so I'm very hopeful uh, that that piece of legislation will be able to get through now that we are uh, having discussions that we should have had a long time ago. Um, But you really do have both dynamics. There is a lack of awareness and there are some intentionally held outdated ideas that need to change. And and finally, do you think that the changes that are proposed here in the law go far enough? Uh, Do they sort of catch all of the potential uh, loopholes and and gaps to, to sort of ensure that this kind of thing is much much harder to to do in the future, if not impossible. You know, the hard reality is I don't think you're ever going to make sexual assault impossible. Sure. Um, and there's always going to be more work to be done. That being said, I think this package is an incredible start. It is comprehensive. It addresses loopholes and weaknesses both in our criminal system and in our civil code. Uh, it addresses the major weaknesses we have in a way that is effective to start the ball rolling. Um, some of these changes are changes a lot of people only dream about accomplishing, um, but we have a chance of doing it because we have a group of committed legislators who are paying attention to what is right instead of what is politically expedient. And that's the kind of leadership we need to get this done. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Rachel Denhollander. Uh, she was the first survivor to publicly accuse Larry Nasser of sexual abuse. Now she's working with legislators here in the state of Michigan to make the laws tougher to deal with sexual abuse and sexual abusers. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, uh, tell us what you think about these proposed changes in the law. Tell us what you think about the reaction to the Nassar scandal. Are we doing the things that we ought to do to make this harder to happen in our state? 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Bill in Rochester. Bill, welcome to the Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Rachel. Uh, A a quick comment and a a quick question. Uh As a father of a teenage daughter, I can't even imagine what you you and your family have to go through, Rachel. And I have to commend you. I know know you from the, the sound of your voice that you got past victim and you got to courage. You were specifically chosen in this lifetime to to demonstrate courage and to be that trailblazer to allow these other women to come through. So I commend you for that. Um, the other thing I want to say is I have a question: is as a as a father of a of a Boy Scout, as an Eagle Scout, um, we never. One of the rules in, in Boy Scouts was that you never ever had alone time with a, a minor. Mm-hmm. You it always had mm-hmm. to be one adult and more than one minor or two adults with one minor. And if there was ever going to be one-on-one contact, it was always going to be in plain sight in front of everybody. Like, uh, and so that's, how does something, how does a monster like this get to, to all of these young ladies like this? How does this happen? Yeah. Uh, Bill, I think that's a, a really great question. I think that's on a lot of people's minds how 
did this happen? I know from the things that I've read and the things that I've heard that in many cases, this happened in front of people's parents. I mean, their parents were in the room. Uh, Dr. Nasser would position himself in a way so that they couldn't see. Or in some cases, you know, I mean, with doctors, uh, you take your kid to the doctor, you trust. You trust that what they're doing is appropriate. You're not thinking about that kind of uh, that kind of abuse. I know those are some of the answers, but Rachel, I'm really curious, uh, of course, uh, given your first person experience here, I'm curious how you answer that question, how this happened so frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the dynamic that you mentioned of having the parents in the room is actually uh, something that really made it possible for Larry to do what he did. And, and this is one of the misconceptions we have in our culture about sexual assault. Oftentimes when a child, almost every time really, when a child discloses their abuse, one of the first questions out of the person's mouth that they have told is, how could that happen because... And then there is always a reason that this person doesn't think it's possible that this that the accused could be a sexual abuser, either the circumstances for the alleged abuse uh, or the type of person uh, that the alleged accuser is. And what we need to understand when it comes to sexual assault, especially childhood sexual assault, is that predators are very skilled manipulators. And the very factors that are making people think it is not possible for that abuse to have occurred, that is what is giving legitimacy to this person. That is what is keeping them in power. They are relying on those dynamics to keep the victim silent. They are relying on those dynamics to ensure that no one believes when the child discloses. Uh, and so in the case of Larry, you did have a situation where Larry was uh, Larry was abusing in front of the parents uh, and, and was blocking their view. Now, for us as children, we didn't realize our parents' view was blocked. Mm-hmm. We presumed our parents had consented. Uh, Larry used our trust in our parents as a weapon. Um, But this is actually not all that uncommon. It is very common, actually, for abuse to take place uh, in public places very quickly uh, or to take place in very close proximity to other adults. Mm -hmm. And that is part of what makes adults doubt when children disclose or simply be unaware of what can happen. Uh, And abusers know that, and they rely on those dynamics. And so we need to get to a place in our culture where we understand that the very dynamics that make us think it's not possible are the very dynamics giving this predator legitimacy and giving this predator access to children. Yeah. Uh, And as you say, that's a cultural problem. That's a little different from the things that would be addressed by these changes in the law. Yes, it is. And so there's, you know, there's work to be done on every front. There's legislative work that needs to be done, but there's also a substantial mindset shift that we need to have in our culture. Okay, Rachel Den Hollander, one of the first uh, victims to report abuse by Larry Nasser, now working with lawmakers to change the laws here in the state of Michigan. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Up next, the U.S. Department of Education has opened its own investigation into the Nasser scandal at Michigan State. We're going to talk with Detroit Free Press higher ed reporter David Jesse about that investigation. And don't forget, if you miss any of today's conversation, you don't have to miss out entirely. You can download the Detroit Today podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. (laughs) 
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Yesterday, the U.S. Department of Education announced that it will also investigate Michigan State University for its handling of the Larry Nasser case. Larry Nasser's abuses happened while he was a physician at MSU. While the Title IX investigation is warranted, there are a couple of hitches in the process, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is a longtime school choice advocate from West Michigan. That includes the period of time that Governor John Angler was the chief executive here in Michigan. Now DeVos is leading the department that's investigating the university that John Angler is currently in charge of. And of course, the two Republicans have a long and complicated political relationship. Uh, here to talk more about this de- Department of Education investigation is David Jesse. He is the higher education reporter for the Detroit Free Press. David, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So no surprise, I think, that the uh, DOE is interested in looking into uh, what happened at Michigan State, given the number of other investigations. But as I point out there in the open, this is a little different. Uh, it's a little different uh, uh, in terms of the basis for the investigation. Title IX is really the, the lever that the DOE has over over universities in this regard. But also the, the figures involved here, the players, uh, are, are not unfamiliar. And as always, we sort of want to sit and think about what do those relationships look like and might they complicate the investigative uh, investigator investigatee uh, relationship. Uh, talk about uh, talk about this investigation and how those things might play out. Well, I think you're right to raise that. I mean, there's a lot of complicating factors here. As you pointed out, uh, obviously Betsy DeVos and John Engler have a, have a long, long, long history. Mm-hmm. They've worked together on school choice things over the over the years. Um, Betsy and the DeVos family have their own ties to the to Michigan State University. Um, Betsy DeVos has also come out um, and been very public with her desire to roll back some of the um, enforcement actions um, or the guidelines that um, President Obama's uh, education department had mm-hmm. for universities and how they uh, handle Title IX. Um, so you got all this kind of mixing around is kind of this context to this investigation where they're going to come in and try to find out what's going on. You also have to throw in there the fact that that, that they've already been here, that uh, in 2015, the Office of Civil Rights, the investigative arm there of the Ed Department came in and slapped Michigan State around pretty good for not um, for, for not handling these complaints already. And they signed a resolution agreement where they were going to take a number of steps to to try to better that process and it's it's pretty clear that not only in this master case but in a variety of other cases that we've reported on they haven't done that so what does that do does that up the stakes here you know where maybe you could maybe the department would have a little slap on the wrist at the beginning for them well now they've already been here and didn't done that slap on the wrist so now something whatever they're going to do is really going to is really going to hurt them? I, you know, will DeVos hurt Angler? I, I don't know. This was all all uncharted territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what's the difference between this investigation and the others already going on? How does this one sort of stand apart? Or how does it, I guess, mesh maybe with some of the other things that are being looked into? Well, it's different in that it's a very spelled out process. Um, 
you know, there are there are several hundred of these investigations ongoing right now um, across the across the nation. Mm-hmm. It's a, including um, the department's looking at the University of Michigan, for example, for uh, for how it handles uh, sexual assault cases. So it, it's a little bit more defined. They they come in. They're going to review uh, case files. Um, they're going to get access to people. And then they're also looking at broader things like culture. What's the culture of the university? How did that play in? Um, you're required to educate people about how to report. Are they doing that? Um, and so there's some there's some some checklist type things. I think that maybe it's a little different than say the the state attorney general um, who's going to be looking. You know, were any Michigan laws broken or Congress who's going to be kind of wanting some hearings, maybe to to force some change in policy. But there's some very specific um, triggers here in a process that the, the department's gonna gonna take. Yeah. So uh, you know, I, as I said, I th- I think it's sort of a foregone conclusion that the DOE had to do something here, uh, and and so we're not surprised to hear this news. But is there is there a sense that this might go differently or lighter? I guess, on Michigan State because of the things that we were talking about, this relationship that exists between uh, Betsy DeVos and John Engler, uh, all of the sort of back and forth that that's been about over the over the years, uh, the, the affinity that the DeVos family has for Michigan State, which you pointed out. I mean, is there a sense that you just had to do this to sort of show the flag, but that, uh, that, that the conflicts here are not just potential, but, because, but could become active? Well, that's definitely the that's definitely the worry, you know, and it's inter- it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, Governor Engler has been or President Engler now has been hiring a number of high profile um, folks to work on this case mm-hmm. to lobby them, mm-hmm. um, you know, just the other day announcing that he was hiring the former chief justice of, uh, of the Michigan Supreme Court, sure. uh, Governor Young. former Bob Young, right? You know, again, another prominent Republican. What's his ties? He's going to be the one kind of being the point person for for this. What's his ties to the DeVos to the DeVos family? What's the you know they hired uh, former Governor Blanchard's firm in in to lobby in in Washington D.C. and to handle interactions there. What's how's that going to play in? Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of this is going to come down to how well Michigan State does in truly being transparent. Do they feel like they're does the federal um, OCR office staff feel like they're having to having to pull teeth to get records and access. The other thing it's worth noting is it kind of tucked away in Secretary DeVos's statement yesterday. She announced she said that there are already there already were investigators on campus talking about Clery Act violations. The Clery Act requires that colleges notify their community, the campus community, when a violent crime occurs. And if you don't do that, you can face big-time monetary fines. Penn State was fined a couple million dollars, um, the largest in history for their Sandusky. And that wasn't, that's not, you know, how do we handle, how do we investigate? That's just simply, did we send a warning out to people saying something was going on? The second biggest fine uh, under the Cleary Act um, ever uh, actually belongs to Eastern Michigan University. You'll remember a few years ago they had a co- uh, a uh, female student who was murdered in her dorm room and they yes. covered that up for for a while and uh, you know they came in and slapped them around so 
the department has a number of levers, not just the Title IX, but some others to pull. And I think it all is going to depend on what, how the university comes across. If they, if they truly are transparent, if they're truly coughing up all the records, if they're truly falling on their sword, then I think you'll probably see a lighter, you'll see something. They're going to have to do something. Um, but you'll see a, a lighter thing than, than if they, uh, if the department has to, you know, drag everything out of them. Right. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is David Jesse. He's a higher ed reporter for the Detroit Free Press. We're talking about the announced investigation by the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, into the Larry Nassar scandal at Michigan State University. Uh, that makes them one of many institutions that are looking into the scandal, determining whether and how the rules might have been broken. If you want to join the conversation... Give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. It's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Deb on Facebook says, Betsy DeVos began her term with a message to colleges that she was going to listen to the young men in assault cases because they were being wrongly accused, and she used MSU as an example. Why is no one asking these hard questions to her and her agenda as U.S. Department of Education head, uh, David. That's a great question. Uh, who who is it who would be asking that question of Betsy DeVos? Well, it'd be it'd be people like me and you. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, uh, Secretary DeVos has been very She's um, no fan of the press. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's putting it close. There's a in the education journalist world. There is a a, a constant. Uh, a constant conversation about the fact that, that uh, we are not getting uh, any access to her. In fact, the ed writers uh, have an annual conference um, every year, and it is tradition for the ed secretary to show up and give to, a little speech, speech and then take questions right. from hundreds of education journalists. And uh, for the first time in a long time, um, that did not happen this year. Uh, secretary DeVos did not attend. Wow. Okay, David Jesse, higher ed reporter for the Detroit Free Press. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. No problem. Thanks, Steve. Up next, should we get rid of Michigan's auto no-fault insurance system altogether? We'll speak with Gongwer publisher John Lindstrom, who remembers the old tort system and has some thoughts about the idea of going back to that. And we want to hear from you. What do you think about the idea of getting rid of no-fault insurance here in the state of Michigan? Would that lower rates? Would that expose people to more trouble and liability? Uh, 313-577-1019, as always, is the number on the phones. We'll be right back on Detroit Today.